This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear, to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot, and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chris Howth. Now, Chris is not only a revered endurance athlete, but he is also one of the top endurance coaches on the planet. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood switching from Germany to the US, swimming at the Olympic level, finding triathlon, 
forging both physical and mental toughness, how he is coaching our athletes to run seven marathons in seven days on seven continents in the 7X project, the importance of rest and recovery, sleep, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Howth. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you on this fine afternoon? (laughs) Well, on this rainy afternoon, we are in uh, Marin County, California, just north of San Francisco over the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay, beautiful. So it's actually morning with you still then? It is. um, Nice early morning and uh, a Friday. So you know, a weekend of running and trails ahead of me. Brilliant. Yeah. We have what one full week left before we go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what is it? Two weeks from today, we begin our, I call it an expedition. Others call it an adventure. Um, so uh, either way, it's going to be quite a story. It is indeed. Yeah. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Mm-hmm. Well, I was born in New York City um, in, uh, as my parents were in, in the United States on a longer business trip. My father was starting a, a factory and a business in upstate New York. My mother had been alone in Germany for quite some time, pregnant. And she was ready to uh, come to the U.S. to say, I'm sick and tired of being alone. So I was born over here um, in uh, New York City as a uh, first generation uh, U.S. citizen. So an unalienable birthright, as as we've learned growing up. So I'm a dual citizen, actually, with German parents and... uh, U.S. citizenship by birthright. So I carry two passports and that's sort of sort of fun and it served me well in my life. I have two passports as well. But it's yeah. funny because when I became a U.S. citizen, the U.K. recognizes dual citizenship and the U.S. doesn't. So depending on who's looking, I have one or two. So <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because um, the U.S., because of the born citizenship and the parents they've never had a problem with me and i've declared both i fly in and out of the country you know interchangeably with passports but um yeah there's there's little nuances to the dual citizenship aspect and my parents remain green card citizens they never became u.s citizens so it was this whole back and forth but due to that i had to do my military service which is also interesting from a u.s 
citizen standpoint that I did my military service in Germany back when they still had a mandatory uh, service requirement. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to that. So he came over <laughs> here. He's on this business trip. Did you yeah. all as a family go back? Did you have your early years in Germany or did they stay? I had two younger brothers and uh, or younger, two older brothers. I was the youngest of three. And um, yeah, they're all in Germany. They came along. It's a big hoopla here. I'm born. And uh, we head back after, you know, a couple months. And then, uh, yeah, some years in Germany, then back to some years in the US. It's always been back and forth. So I speak both languages fluently due to that. And then finally, when I was like uh, 10, I spent the, the remaining years of my education um, in boarding school in Germany. And then I came here for college. Beautiful. So very interesting upbringing then. I, I yeah. learned German as a second, well, third language in um Senior school, yeah. So, but yeah. I only mastered a few phrases: "Ich habe Verstopfung," "Ich habe Durchfall." <laughs> you know the the dire emergencies that you need. Exactly. <laughs> and everybody knows how to order a beer in German for some reason. Yeah. Well, luckily that word's pretty close anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I think it's international. So, what with that incredibly interesting, you know, almost like dual life that you had on in two different countries as you were progressing through your childhood. Mm-hmm. What were some of the pros and what were some of the cons of that experience going from country to country? It's a good question. Um, growing up in different cultures, I think, is very valuable for a child. I see it in my children that they don't, <laughs> that they don't have different cultures. I mean, we travel a bit, but truly growing up and immersing yourself in def- different perspectives and cultures and mindsets around the world. Now, it wasn't necessarily around the world for me. Germany has a different approach and different mindset and a different culture and a different way of teaching and comes with a lot of psychological um, differences, especially in the generation I grew up, than what is familiar in the United States. So that taught me a totally different perspective, also from a, um, a world perspective, meaning politics, meaning um, how to approach people with regards to their cultural background in many different ways. And so, yeah, it's uh, I find it very beneficial. It's helped me in a lot of ways. But I also um, would say the free spirit of the American uh, lifestyle and mindset is also something at times I'm envious of because it's so nonchalant and non- nonchalant and non-worrisome to, to, to the American themselves. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been exposed a little bit to the two cultures. I skied in Austria quite a few mm-hmm. years, which is obviously a very similar culture. And then mm-hmm. where my brother and mother live now, Portugal, they get a lot of German tourists as well. And yeah. from the outside looking in, even though this is completely down to the individual, it does seem like they're not as playful maybe as some other cultures out there they're very serious you can say that but um <laughs> I'm, I'm not shy in saying that and i'm very serious myself as, as many people will say who know me but i also think that's a generational thing right um i'm 53 years old i grew up with parents who survived the war who came out of rubbles and had to rebuild their entire life um, as well as the hardships of world war ii along with that psychological angst of guilt of 
understanding what it was that was happening in World War II and, and being the aggressor and so forth. So I think I grew up also, and many of my friends in Germany, we have a similar um perspective once again that word perspective is very important because it doesn't necessarily mean it is you but you can uh, view it perspective um, from that lens and get a good insight into that psyche and so yeah uh, we grew up or i grew up in a in a in a culture and with older people around me that were very serious absolutely um and many might compare that to, let's say, the word disciplined or focused. I'm not necessarily uh, willing to quite say that because there's a generation in Germany growing up right now that's not very disciplined and focused. So it's not necessarily a full national thing. But again, you know, it's coming out of a generation that started from nothing. You're taught early on and, and, uh, from a very young age, from a psyche standpoint, that you got to work hard in order to make anything work. So my my country, uh, you know, the nation, whatever you want to describe it, um, is responsible for part of slavery. It's responsible for imperialization of all kinds of cu cultures and you know, mm -hmm. genocide and all all kinds of things. And um, we look at the Ukraine now with Russia, I always question the same thing. There are things that are done by people in our country doesn't mean that the whole country is behind what's happening. And I doubt many Russian farmers are just yearning to dominate the Ukraine. When you look back and listen to the German voices that you grew up amongst, I think there's a huge unspoken multi-generational trauma element that I think is at the root of a lot of the mental health, ill health that we're seeing today. If you look back and I've had this very unusual perspective where I'm starting to hear like 700 plus conversations. And more often than not, granddad wasn't this uber resilient man that came back from war, rolled up his sleeves and just, you know, was this incredible human being. He was struggling with alcoholism and there was domestic violence and some other things more often than not. And I can imagine the German voices are very similar, especially if you didn't align with what your country was doing overseas. So, what were some of the kind of perspectives from, you know, the previous generations from a German voice? Because you just don't hear a German voice very often. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's two voices, right? I was lucky enough to grow up in an environment and with teachers and um, boarding school, you know, um, 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 uh, I wouldn't say uh, parents because they're not really your parents, but they influence you when you're there at a young enough age that um, I saw both perspectives and I had luckily people that were quite open to looking at things from different perspectives. But there is definitely another group that, um, <laughs> that avoids that conversation 100% and still does, or they're gently, you know, dying off, unfortunately. So there's a lot of guilt and, and, and lack of conversation there. But I was luckily around a lot of people, uh, maybe just because of um, my personality or what the energy I'm drawn towards, but people who were very open and talked about it, um, talked about, you know, their parents and the roles and, and so forth, as well as sort of this in-between generation. If you're born after the war, but 
you're, you know, so if you're born after the war in the late 40s, you're carrying that guilt with you, but you were teaching in school at 30, 40 years old, because now it's 1990, 19, you know, 80s when I was in school there. And so you're you're carrying on this this communication of a time that you don't have any association with. But that being said, what you said with regards to the German approach, psyche, for lack of a better description right now, um, and I haven't thought this through much. I haven't talked about this too much with a lot of people. It doesn't really come up on podcasts, which, but I appreciate it, is actually different. The Germans were very resilient, very focused towards rebuilding their country, very proud of their country and their homeland. Um, they quickly disassociated from what was um, a political party and a mindset and um, uh, what was happening in the 30s and early 40s in Germany and quickly took on a very powerful pride in the U.S. system, the Marshall Plan that was being installed in the United, in Germany. And they did that with a lot of focus and a lot of pride. And their liberal democracy that they have today was built on the foundation of these hardworking, proud principles to be a model of what the United States created. And we are going to do it even better than that because we were given this opportunity. And I think the German strength in that, and it's come out now in a little bit more because it's passed down a generation in almost a pompous way. Um, I think the younger generation in Germany currently is like, is very like, of course we can, of course, this is what we do. Of course, we'll make better products. Of course, we can figure this out. And they're actually quite surprised that they have the same problems as the United States, right? Because they think of themselves almost as better um, because that's how they were taught by their parents. Not that they're better, but that we're going to work harder that we're going to improve on the system that the United States so generously built our country on post-war. And we are going to take, the, it's very similar to, let's say, um, in, in many ways, in Asian culture. When those parents come to the United States, they say, listen, you have an opportunity. We never went to college. You're going to work extra hard and you are going to take this opportunity and make something of it. Right. And it was very similar to the psyche and the approach in Germany growing up, where it's like, you know what? We have this opportunity. You're going to make something of yourself. <laughs> and we're not going to let you not make something of yourself. Well, with that next generation, it really does resonate with me with the US. And I think there's there's a perfect clip of a television show. I think it was called Newsroom, if I've got that right. Um, and it was, I think, Jeff Daniels. Mm -hmm. um was the one monologuing but it was he was in he was a visiting professor i think and they're in this university and the question by one of the students is you know uh why do you think america is the greatest country in the world and a couple of the other people gave their canned answers and then he stood up this character stood up and said we're not and then the whole room gasped and they're like oh my god and then he explained why and he said you know on education we're here on you know murder whatever whatever the stats that he used and i think it was such a powerful um, perspective because he kind of refer back we used to be he said you know in mm -hmm. you know post-world war ii um and i think this is the problem is some people have forgotten firstly that it's not a competition you know the world you know it's not a it's not a ranking but 
you make your own nation great by rolling up your sleeves and putting work in. But if you just sit back and you know talk crap about the opposite political party or whatever, and don't actually invest in your community and mentor the children you know in your community and do something good for others, then before you know it, you sat back and it slid down and down and down. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that you're seeing the same kind of thing in Germany that I see here in the U.S. You know, and in the U.K. I'm not saying that where I came from was perfect either. It's uh, it's but it's a delay factor, um, and it used to be a little bit greater the delay factor. The world got smaller, but I would be able to come back from the United States from visiting here my parents when I was younger, and then I would go back to Germany to boarding school, and I would say, you know, in about two three years from now, this will become a trend here, right? Because you there was this like following whatever the United States did. Now it's almost immediate, right? Like something gets popular here, it's on TikTok there just as well right it, it that that part hasn't gone away but that being said um the expectations is uh is a is the word i like to use um you can't expect anything right you're gonna have to go out and create work um figure it out drive motivate um you know be consistent in order to achieve the outcomes you desire to achieve you can't wait for something else or someone else to do it for you Um, Now, in the United States, that's the crazy thing is here you have the most freedoms and space to do that than in any other country in the world. As you can imagine in the UK, as you might know, but I know for a strong aspect in Germany, the amount of paperwork and psyche and mentality and mindset you have to fight through to do your own thing as an entrepreneur or to just to speak differently or, you know, to uh, do your own thing in that respect. Like if I wanted to become a public speaker in Germany, oh my gosh, it would take, <laughs> it would take forever. Not because you have to go through these rituals and these paperworks and these get these degrees and you know titles just to open doors here doesn't matter here you can go on stage and talk right and eventually if you're good at it you you work your way through the system and you're 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 doing it in in front of bigger crowds and communities (laughs) in germany it doesn't work like that right you need a title you need you know permissions you need paperwork it's drives me bananas but the point is we have this amazing opportunity and great country where the system's set up for that. And I feel as though more and more, it's just kick back and see, well, where's mine? Where's mine? Right. And, you know, but I also believe that more and more this is becoming um, clearer to a s- small but growing group of where's the challenge where's the work where's the purpose where's the meaning and how do i get it out there meaning how do i get my meaning and my purpose out there because within that is the fulfillment of you know a good life absolutely well i want to get on to the healthcare in a second because that's another very important topic i think that other countries perspective is is valuable but before we even do that from a proactive point of view when I think of kind of wartime footage from a German side, I think of a bunch of soldiers around or young men around the Lido, the swimming pool, doing all their calisthenics, seemingly, you know, in, in great shape. What did physical education look like for a German schoolboy growing up in your time? Um, well, I was a swimmer from a young age on, so I was already pulled out. The German state and the system there, although it was West Germany, um, East Germany, totally different story. Um, 
but they're very supportive of the sports and you don't go to college doing sports there. You continue on in the federation of the country. And so I was, you know, lucky and uh, enough to be identified pretty early in the system um, because it is, you know, a system, it's a social system in Germany or even in sports where, you know, I was quickly swimming a lot, <laughs> a fair amount, and able to do a lot of things with my swimming. But in a general PE standpoint, actually, there's none. There's really? none in school, right? Because you do a little bit, but it's because school in Germany growing up, it, it's definitely gotten longer now. But we used to go to school from 830 to 1230, six days a week. Uh, you're always home for lunch and you have a warm meal at home for lunch. Oftentimes the, the father or mom comes home for lunch or the mom's usually at home. Again, this is the eighties. We're not talking like, you know, this is a long time ago in the meantime, but um, you go to school six weeks, uh, six days of the month of the week. And you, I mean, your summer vacation is maybe four and a half weeks, five weeks. So you're getting the same amount of schooling in. It's just a lot shorter days better attention span. So they wouldn't put in PE in that same format as here because they have to get in those four hours regular schooling. And that being said, you're playing soccer. You're like, you're outdoors there. It's just that it doesn't work any differently, right? You're constantly doing something and encouraged to do something. So it was different in the eighties. I, I quite honestly don't know how well that works now. My nieces and nephews are all pretty athletic. And so therefore they're out doing their thing too. My my nephew is one of the you know, best U17 soccer players in Germany and on that national team. So it, I get a completely wrong perspective of how this works. So Interesting. Yeah. But that's funny because that's what we talk about in the fire service with fitness standards. Mm. Ideally, you don't even need a standard because every person in uniform un understands what you know, is expected of them and they go out and they keep themselves fit and they eat well and they try and work on their sleep. And so the ideal culture is one that there's not a need for that, that you have all these outlets and it's a norm to be moving. I think that's another, I guess, you know, sadly, a side effect of the way that we do school now is A, our school days are very long. B, we get our elementary school kids in first, so they're missing even more sleep. And then there's this mandatory, you know, PE that's almost seen as a burden rather oh, yeah. than this inspiration for kids to be outside and moving amongst nature and, and play rather than this massive division between either you do PE and you do it begrudgingly or we drive your performance to an elite level, you break at the age of 20 and then, all right, we're done with you now. Thanks. So, yeah. so it's a very yeah. different system coming from the outside looking in. Yeah, it's F, everything is extremes. <laughs> it's become extremes, right? But that being said, what you said with regards to the firefighters, and again, I'm generalizing, um, but whether law enforcement, firefighters, any type of first responder, um, you're getting to the crux of it. And the crux of it is I do this because it's who I want to be. And if that's who I want to be, then I'm going to do it based off my values and principles. If I want to save people's lives, if I want to be on those front lines, caring for people, helping people, I'm also going to care and help myself in order to be at the best of my abilities. Because you can't care for others if you don't care for yourself. You can't love others more than you love yourself. It just doesn't work in the human psychology. 
right? And if this is something that has purpose and meaning and it's your craft, guess what? You're going to be fit and healthy in order to do your craft at the highest of your personal abilities and continue to grow and progress from there. If it's just a job, if I'm just pulling a paycheck, it serves a need as in it serves an outcome, we're going to run into problems, right? Because there's no deeper intrinsic value to this to you. And you're just pulling a paycheck. And of course, you're getting some sort of value and, and, and it's fun and camaraderie and, you know, all that with it and your brothers and your sisters and so forth. But if it's not coming from deep inside that heart and you have a deeper why and a purpose and a meaning and a joy in doing it because it's who you want to be, then you're going to run into those issues. Absolutely. You're preaching to the choir there. But I think the other side of the conversation that's also important, and we're definitely going to unpack this as we get deeper in, is you have an environment that allows someone to thrive or an environment that breaks people down. And this is the the sad thing about especially the American fire service, the way they work them, it really does set them up for failure. And the most driven, you know, burning desire of firefighters and police officers will still keep themselves to that high level but they're swimming upstream and then that middle oh, yeah. group that maybe can be you know led one way or the other well they start to deteriorate and then 10 years in you see sadly a lot of the kind of obesity and um just exhaustion that you see amongst many of the men and women in uniform yeah yeah i mean again like you just said there's so much to unpack there from a mindset standpoint, from a support standpoint, from a, again, from a care standpoint. I mean, the whole reason we're talking today from a mental um, health standpoint and a suicide prevention standpoint and just overall general mental health, uh, there's so much more that could be done to support, to create that sort of safety net, to create a better mindset around it. Um but again, it's overlooked. It's overlooked. And as I've talked to with the guys that we'll probably talk about later, but, you know, a division three athlete in the United States gets better nutrition, strength, mental health support than any serviceman, any firefighter, any law enforcement officer. And they're out there on the front lines doing the hard work, right? And we're supporting, again, I was a student athlete and uh, athletics in college is a great experience, but I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they should not be getting billions of dollars before those that are serving our communities, putting their life on the line and so forth, um, right? Like, it's fine if those, if the schools, and I'm not even talking division one. <laughs> I'm not even talking division two. I'm talking division three alone. And so, you know, it's fine if the frontline service um, uh, and law enforcement and firefighters and first responders get theirs, get their support, get that insight, get the nutrition and uh, that learning and so forth, as well as our, you know, military. And then it still rolls into, there's there's plenty to go around for them to still get it, right? And that's the crazy thing. I mean, it's just, it's just one angle of many. Absolutely. And so, 
either way, the ball is dropped. And, you know, it's cogs. Again, you're treated like a cog in a wheel. I serve, done, next, put in the next person. And who we just released, who we just let go, who just phased out, who just resigned gets overlooked. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so... <sighs> I love the fact that I've got all these different voices from all these different communities saying the same thing. They might be from the psychology space, from the coaching space. I mean, you name it, but it all mm -hmm. aligns. And this is, you know, one of the things that's going to come out of 7X and some other things that I got going on as well is to bring all this knowledge and these minds to finally educate the military, the first responder community. Like this is, this is how you foster elite performance. Mm -hmm. And then conversely, here's, here's what you're doing over here. And big surprise, you're losing all these people from this gamut of diseases, including overdose and suicide. Yeah. And a sense of purpose, right? You lose your sense of purpose as a child. What was our sense of purpose? Making our parents proud, making our friends like envy us or look up at us, look up towards us, right? Those was, and then we continued on. We got that validation. Our community was proud of us. Or, you know, you got the support of teammates and you went on to and the next level and you continue to have somebody supporting you behind you that you are making proud. We're not doing that in this community. After a while, A, you're overlooked. B, you're treated like crap, right? Um, it, and and you're looked at with this negative perspective like why where's your where's your sense of purpose going to go where is your desire to continue on going to go if everybody you look at is like oh <laughs> sorry i don't really want to have much to do with that or you're criticized that motivation will go away real quickly no matter what your deeper uh, why and who you want to be is is wrapped in there Absolutely. Well, I want to walk through your kind of athletic career and then we can get to the coaching side. You talked about swimming when you were young. You you reached a pretty high pinnacle when it came to swimming. So walk me through that journey for you specifically. Yeah. So I swam throughout boarding school and continued to get better and uh, came here. I, my goal was always to come to the United States for college, um, no matter sort of what would have happened because the pinnacle of swimming and sports um, and the swimming sport is United States college NCAA one swimming. It is what it is. Um, you can get great competition elsewhere, but it's not quite as exciting and as fun and as uh, a, a collection of talent as in NCAA. Um, and in many amateur sports, I would say, uh, you know, most it's, it's pretty amazing over here. So uh, I came here and I was decent. It wasn't great. I had uh, some, you know, junior national team for Germany. It was a Hungarian who was quite an intense guy. And he, um, he quickly propelled me to becoming a dramatically better swimmer. And uh, I was also in a group of swimmers that were former, uh, not former, current medalists at the previous Olympics and just you know, all, all ships rose in this, in this tide of, of talent. And, um, so from being a walk-on to then getting a little bit of money to then getting some support at University of Michigan was, um, quickly things were moving. And so when in 92, 
at this point now, my coach had left. He was an assistant coach at University of Michigan. And he left and went to Washington, D.C. His wife worked for the World Bank. And he joined a university in Washington, D.C. called American University. And I was doing so well with him that I went to American University with him very quickly. Um, there was no ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, I had a wonderful time at Michigan, and I loved it. And we're actually going there with one of my my daughters in a couple weeks to look at this school as well. But uh, I just had to go. This was my opportunity, and I continued to progress. So in 92, when the Olympic trials in Germany came around, I felt like, you know, I'm going to give it my best. And uh, and I, I just want to say in 90 and 90, well, 90, I was nowhere near sniffing <laughs> the A-team. <laughs> in 91, there was junior European championships. There was, you know, um, I missed the world championship team by a little bit, but I could see that there's a path. And then in 92, because in late 91, the wall came down between East Germany and West Germany. There was uh, quite a different Olympic trials in Germany. It was in Munich, um, my hometown, and where I did all my swimming growing up. So I was coming home to my home pool, to my home swim team, and uh, it was great. It was absolutely great. It felt very um, safe and um, familiar. But again, I had no crazy visions of doing anything, but I could start sensing the writing on the wall. And what that was is that the East German swimmers who are way better than the West German swimmers for reasons that are pretty clear in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> With the Russian influence. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they were struggling. And mainly because since the wall came down, their financial system and their economic system had crumbled. And so most athletes on the um, East Eastern European side, especially East Germany side, were getting government support. They were getting a government apartment. They were getting a government car. They were getting a government stipend for groceries every month. And when the system came crashing down in November of 91, all of those funds and all of that went out the window within six weeks. They didn't have the ability to even clean the pools because the pool workers. So there was no chlorine. There was just dirty pools. It was just complete collapse, right? Everybody sort of abandoned ship and quickly was like, um, we're out of here. Or those that stayed were stuck with no income and had to figure out how to make some money. And even though you're a world-class athlete, you'd want a, maybe even a gold medal for East Germany. In the previous Olympics in 88 in Seoul, you are now stuck on the street. And here you are eight months before your next Olympics, six months before your next Olympic trials, and you you have nowhere to train, you have no income, you don't have money to put gas in your car. And it was all becoming, it was all very clear to us in West Germany of what was going on. I mean, the stories, you, you quickly find out what everybody's doing um, because it was just such a dramatic shift. And so... There was this sort of murmur of like, will they even show up as a merged team? It was the first unified team since World War II. And uh, fortunately enough for me, not saying it's fortunate for them because it's a little bit different situation. It's a life situation with a family and feeding you know, your family. Um, a few of them, A, did not show up 
and B, those that did were not nearly as fit and as as they're capable um, and the times they swam. So in swimming, you know, the fastest swimmers are in the middle of the pool, the slower swimmers on the outside of the pool. I was in lane eight. I was the last qualifier for finals um, in the 400 individual medley. And uh, during that race, it, during the event itself, um, I had no idea what place I was in. I knew one of the guys was way ahead of me. It was going to be way ahead of me. He could swim faster than me in my in his sleep. <laughs> and uh, when I hit the wall, I was second. And that was that. Um, and from there, off I went on a ticket to Barcelona. Well, just before we get to Barcelona, not very many people have the perspective of, you know, not only being originally from Germany, but also having the dual nationality in, in the US. <laughs> Aside from that really interesting story from the swimming perspective, you know, what were some of the other things that Germans experienced when the wall came down? You know, there may have been, I'm sure there were some pros and some cons and you had families that were separated by the wall and some, I'm assuming some people that were indoctrinated into the Russian way of life and then vice mm -hmm. versa. So what are some of the things that people probably haven't heard that you experienced or, or your family experienced firsthand? Yeah, it was, I was removed from it because I was in the United States. I was in college now. So I was here full time just reading and watching on TV and couldn't believe what was going on. I mean, I grew up in the late 70s and early and uh, throughout the 80s in, you know, East and West Germany was the most <laughs> contrasting systems. I did go to Berlin and Eastern Europe a few times on school trips or swim trips and so forth. But, you know, you were fully exposed to the communist system. It was quite a interesting and and um shaped who i am today some of those insights and trips and what you saw on with regards to soviet style eastern germany and soviet style poland and soviet style czech republic and you know and moscow i mean it was all we were in all those places and it was quite a different experience in all of them um compared to the west but that being said, so I was in college, and so a lot of it was just I heard from family and from friends over there. But it was the Wild West. It was absolutely the Wild West. You have to figure that all of a sudden, all the economic system that they know went away and it turned into barter. It, it turned into Westerners coming into East Germany, quickly trying to sell stuff and, you know, create an economy and take advantage of a lot of people in a lot of ways, as well as try to start buy properties and buy, you know, old industrial, um, you know, properties in order to set up their own factories or, or new factories in the future. They knew a huge influx of money was going to be coming in. It was very similar. I would say it was very similar as I'm saying this to, you know, when COVID hit and the government just spent all that money with PPP loans here and just sending everybody a check and same thing with East Germany, not same thing, but very similar. It was just the coffers were open, apply for a loan, get your money. You know, we had to bring in the whole German, you know, Deutschmark system back then and get that going. And he's, it was, it was the wild west and it was, everything was so frustrating. There was a lot of resentment by the Eastern East Germans because, you know, they were being treated as second-class citizens, you know, oh, you're from the East. 
you know, I mean, it's almost like a, you know, a, a, a term of, it's a negative term when you call somebody an Easterner in German. Um, and that's came from that time. It was, it was ugly and it was the wild west and it was, a, it was a very, but once again, Germans put their sleeves up and rebuilt that, you know, they almost doubled the size of the country <laughs> and put their sleeves up and, you know, they have a quite an economy and quite, everything's brand new over there. I mean, everything's brand new. They built new factories, new roads, new housing, new infrastructure, <laughs> new grid, new everything. So now it's shiny and everything's, you know, looks great over there. Um, but yeah, there's a lot in the psyche of these Germans and like what they deserve and they feel they deserve. And, you know, everybody, every country has their tensions like this. And, and that's a big one in Germany to this day, this day. Um, because you don't have a generation yet that doesn't know any different and doesn't want that support and that recognition of what they had to bear for, you know, 40 years, 45 years. So it's deeply in their psyche too. Yeah. And again, there's that multi-generational trauma. I mean, part of the, you know, the, the country had their war experience and then got brought into the kind of Western society and then half had the war experience and got put into yeah. communism. So, and it was really just a, a, you know, Russian roulette of where your house happened to sit on a map. Yeah. And then let's say you were in Ber Berlin, even there, it was just a puzzle piece where you decide where the, the allied forces along with the Russians decided to split up Berlin because Berlin sits in the heart way in East Germany. And then, but because Berlin was the capital after World War II, they divided Berlin Berlin up into four sectors. And so you were you could have been living on one block in Berlin in 1945 and were lucky that you were all of a sudden in the American sector or the British sector or the French sector. Or you could be on the wrong side of the street and now you grew up in the Soviet sector because they put a wall right through that city. And it's crazy. It's crazy to think that that's how that worked, but that's how they drew up the lines uh, post-World War II, the Allies and the Russians. Or I should say, um, I should correct myself, the Allies and the Soviets. There's a, there is a difference. Well, firstly, thank you for that perspective. My brother actually lived in Bremen for a few years. He still works in Germany, but he flies back and forth now. He moves his family back to the UK. Um, Healthcare, I think, is such an important conversation. You know, the the health of the nation, I think, is the most important conversation. Which, if we are failing in one thing, it's our physical, mental health crisis in this country. Mm -hmm. But then you have this kind of for profit healthcare system that we have here, coming from England, where we have the NHS, which they label as socialized medicine in this country, which has got nothing to do with socialism. It's altruism, in my opinion. You know, everyone mm -hmm. chips in to take care of the ones who need it. Um, what from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm completely misinformed, is that post-World War II, I think um, President Roosevelt was wanting to do this in the US as well, but they put a, a form of national health in Japan and in Germany, but after he passed away, they scrapped it here in, in America. So modern day times now, what is the difference between German healthcare, if you if you have a lens on that now, and what you see here in the US? Yeah, well, there it's called healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure if we have what's called healthcare here. 
Um, in Germany, you have um, centralized government-funded healthcare. I mean, the copay is minuscule. Of course, you can upgrade to private as well. Um, it's like a rider on your insurance, but it's 100% covered. And there is no there is no exception to that. Now, don't get me wrong, taxes in Germany uh, and the income taxes are a lot higher. But at the end of the day, actually, they're not, it, it, it's a lot cheaper because you're not paying all this health insurance and everything isn't so expensive from the system standpoint anyway. So the end, the end taxpayer in Germany actually makes more money despite paying more in taxes because they're not dealing with all these other outlays. And just the system alone allows for um, that part and in many parts just to be off the table. You don't have to, it's not something to think about, not something to worry about. And you can focus more on whether it's, you know, your work or your family or your community. Yeah, it's the same in the UK. I saw, uh, I think it was a BBC piece, but it was a side-by-side -side comparison of the NHS and the US. The only area where there was a slight improvement in care was actual cancer treatments itself. But again, that, yeah. in my opinion, there are some incredible holistic options for that too. But everywhere else, apples for apples, the standard of care was less. The amount of available beds was actually less. So all these kind of fallacies that you hear, because they'll find some overrun inner city hospital and use that as the example. What I witnessed, for example, my 99-year-old uh, grandfather had cancer you couldn't have bought better healthcare than, than what he had from the hospice mm -hmm. care to the home visits. It was, it was incredible. But so you get these people go, oh, you hear about taxes. Yeah, but out of pocket, Germany, the UK, you're actually better off, you know? And then even though the UK is not doing this at the moment, when run properly, if your taxes are paying for the healthcare, to me, that's going to be more of an impetus to drive preventative uh, measures. So, better nutrition, cleaner food, you know, more PE or, you know, pedestrianized yeah. downtowns, whatever it is. But if you've got a for-profit system like here, the sick are the consumers. They're not yeah. going to want you to get healthy or die. They want to keep you right in that little happy medium. Exactly. Exactly. If you can be paying, we'll keep you right there in that gray zone. Right. And we see that constantly in the, you know, nutrition and medical world. I combine the two a little bit um, because, They'll say you're healthy or you're within ranges, but it's basically you're alive, right? You get blood work done here in the United States and, you know, the medical community will say, oh, yeah, you're fine. You're within ranges. But if you look at it, those ranges, if you're below that, if you're outside of the ranges or let's say in the food pyramid of the USDA, like that's pretty bad. You're barely, you're, you're, you're basically dying. Um, whereas the other way around, those, those standards are a little bit higher, but it comes back to this, this fundamental, um, initial principle, and that is choice. And quite honestly, everything in this country of the United States is built on choice. I want to be able to make my own choice. It's the founding principle of this country. They came here <laughs> from Europe because they wanted choice and they created a system based on choice. 
everything. Freedom of this, freedom for that. I get to make my individual choice. And so you can see how everything is built on that, right? And in, in Germany, quite honestly, you ask people, they don't want the choice. They add, they demand that their government makes the choice for them. It's a completely different mindset. It's like, well, what do you mean? This isn't up to us. Fix it. Right? And here it's at the first question. It's like, why are they telling me what to do? I want to be able to choose if I want them to fix it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the again the environment piece is is what's missing. I think the the freedom of choice is a beautiful thing. So create a town, a village where whatever the choice is, it's still a healthy choice. You know what I mean? So yeah, you can't yeah. demonize every fast food chain in the world, but if you've got a pedestrianized downtown with you know healthy food coming in from local farmers and there's play parks everywhere and you know a virus comes in, you don't shut everything to do with fitness and community and deliver fast food and booze, for example, um, you know, you can encourage great choices, but you're still making choices. But yeah. if your world is full of liquor stores, gun shops, and, you know, McDonald's, whatever choice you make is still probably going to be detrimental, even though you feel like you're empowered because you're making a choice. Yes. Yes. But that's a question, in my opinion, of values and principles. Right. If you're not taught or you don't know what your values and principles are, any choice you make while you still feel the power of your own choice is going to be determined by, you know, are you going to be healthy or not? Like I am more of, and I've taken on this mindset with, especially of living in the United States for so long. Like it's sort of how we're wired as humans. Right. This is let's let's pull it way back to the lizard brain. And choice is sort of how it works. That's natural selection. The two are very closely related. And if you're you're choosing bad things, despite knowing intrinsically it's not good for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now no, we're not talking from a mental health standpoint and and, and so forth. That's a different totally different equation but choice comes with with that choice comes great responsibility right like because we've put it in this country as a government as a philosophy as a principle upon the people to make the choice but we don't give them the education the tools and the background to properly you know to make an educated choice yeah exactly well i think that's the perfect analogy as well you put 20 fantastic leaders in front of the country. And then, like you said, you educate the country on what they stand for and what's important to them. Now you make a great choice. What I see the last few years, plural, which encompasses both sides that we have at the moment, is the frequent phrase, the lesser of two evils, which tells me that the choices that the people are given yeah. through this broken system that we have aren't the choices that they would make if they actually had 20 good, good leaders in front of them. Yeah, well, but that brings up a whole different debate, right? Where it's like, who's going to go into politics these days? Exactly. Like, I'm sorry, you, anybody is going to just really second guess that. Absolutely. Really second guess that. And so the quality of humans, and again, I'm generalizing, um, it's um, <laughs> on, on many levels, 
right? Not just at the top level, isn't going to be that person because why would you put yourself into that vulnerable position? Even the sense of duty, there's other things you can do in your community and service and make a difference um, with your pulse on making a difference than politics. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that that brings us around to, to 7X, which we'll get to very soon, um, is... I've argued this, the leaders of fire service, the leaders of our union, the leaders of the military and law enforcement and dispatch and corrections, you would think that they, the, the well-being, the physical, mental well-being of their people who are leaving their families to fend for themselves while they go and protect a community in another city or another country, that we would at least take care of those people. And yet you have people like Ryan Parrott, who comes out of serving, sets up one nonprofit to help burn injured veterans and responders because they're not being taken care of to the level they should. And then what we'll talk about, you know, another thing. And now here he is off in another direction again, because people are being let down by people in leadership positions that I would argue shouldn't be there. And like you said, because the system is designed where if you have pieces of paper, well, congratulations, now you're in charge of this thing, rather than who is, again, back down to that burning desire, that heart for service, mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have to persuade to put in, you know, fitness facilities, mental health counseling, etc. Yeah. It's back, it's work, right? And a lot of people like to be in positions of power and Again, it's work. It's a lot of work. And change is is even harder when it comes to work, right? And you know, I I'm not as optimistic in that respect. I think that's a bottom-up question of uh because I believe top down, we're just not seeing that happen. I mean, at the highest level, I mean, we're it's a bunch of old white men, quite honestly. Right. <laughs> That's <I'm> true. <laughs> At some point, it's like, please. And then, secondly, um, have them are appointed. You have mid level politics, they're appointed, and then they're given some freedoms and power, and they're not going to give that up. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle. And, the system is broken in so many ways. And so what what are what are we doing? What is it that we can do? It's like you find your little, you navigate your tiny path through this to get what you can in order to help serve others. Right. But again, on the ground level, regardless of what your background is, regardless of what your beliefs are, it's crazy how everybody is truly human. And they care. And that's what I love about that's the opportunity that presents itself. And you don't have that in my case. I know, friend, you don't have that in Germany. People are not as open and as willing to do to roll up their sleeves like this to make a difference, to make themselves exposed and vulnerable like you do in the United States. And the people I've come across in these causes especially just with 7X over the last year, it's amazing how much effort and time people put in this. Absolutely. And I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And that is unique once again to this country. Yeah, and I agree completely. I think 
you see a lot of negativity on news like if you subscribe to a certain kind of uh blueprint on your social media it's going to send you towards you know negative or positive but i think you have an incredible group of people that come hell or high water are going to do good in the world then yeah. you have a group of people that come hell or high water are going to do bad in the world but then you have that middle group again like we were talking about with the wellness and the fire service that mean well they just need some some leadership and again yeah. that's not in a patronizing way it's not people can't lead but just sometimes it's just a nudge and the perfect example is you know there's a wreck and someone's under a car and then that first person goes let's lift that car then all of a sudden all these people come from everywhere and they lift the car together so i think that's where we're at they are we have so many great people and one of the kind of sayings that i use is i want to get people educated and angry understand mm -hmm why things are wrong and then get angry in a in a positive you know way that's going to create action and like you said the base of the pyramid is a lot bigger than the tip so we're the ones that have to force change and if the person at the top isn't worthy well remember that we pay for them you know replace them with someone who is but in the meantime take care of your household and then step outside your front door find a way that you can positively affect your community if everyone does that we would truly change the world yeah and especially our world. And what I mean by that is not, um, you know, just here or just, it's more, if you are positively affecting the widest uh, circle of your community, you're feeling it the most, right? It's not about changing somebody, you know, thousands of miles away. It's about having an impact in your world. And those circles get wider and wider and wider of your community if there's more and more people looking to change their world, their community, or having an impact, changes it. Even change the word is loaded these days, right? Um, not necessarily loaded these days, but it means a lot. Like I, we're not looking to change, improve, right? Support, nurture, guide versus change. Because in my belief, it's already there. The potential is already there. Right. We just like you said, we just have to nudge, highlight, encourage that behavior, that mindset, that willingness. I come across it all the time, all day long. And most of my athletes, most of the people I speak to, most of the retreats I'm at, most of the um, stages I stand on. it I can't tell the difference between who's who and what their beliefs are or where they're from. They all care. They all care to be, get, be better. The human being is happiest when they're making progress. When we're standing still, we get depressed. We get disappointed in ourselves. It's in our psyche to continue to grow. It releases all kinds of neurochemicals. It gives us a sense of purpose. We're heading somewhere. We're aiming somewhere. It's so important. But when we're stagnant, we, that's when we get unhappy. That's when we question everything. And so what are we creating in any of these communities, whether it's first responders, whether it's military, whether it's a church, whether it's, you know, your little league, whether it's with your soccer team, it doesn't matter. How are we as humans progressing in our little community? How are we growing? And once we're in sort of that state of progress and growth, the human spirit is unimaginably powerful. Well, speaking of growth and stagnation, um, one challenge that I think a lot of people see in the military and first responders is 
the transition. There's there's a lot of identity in being a soldier and being a firefighter. And there was an incredible documentary recently called The Weight of Gold, and Michael Phelps was one of the athletes on that. You talked about getting to Barcelona. Walk me through your success there. And if you had any kind of uh, mental health element when you got to the point where swimming specifically, you weren't able to compete anymore. Yeah, um, good question. I um, I went on to Barcelona. Um, didn't I mean I did well? I did well for me, but not anything that many people associate with the Olympics. Like I didn't even make the finals, right? Um, and nor did I win any medals. Um, so we can clarify that. My second Olympics, I was an alternate. I didn't even get to swim. So. But that being said, swimming was, in many ways, my identity, you would think. But luckily, early on, and again, I'm not sure if this is training, if this is just sort of how we were educated in Germany, because once you're on the national team, they do you, they take you through all kinds of public speaking classes. They take you through sports psychology. They take you through all because they want to, you're being showcased right? You're representing the country. So they prepare you for that. Um, and so part of that was early on. So this must have been like, I'm 22, 23, right? I'm the back end of college and, um, you know, first Olympics. And so now I'm thinking, I'm learning, excuse me, um, what I do is not who I am. And I, I mean, I remember vividly thinking that and learning that. Um, and I talked to that to a lot of people about that today. Like who you are isn't what you do. And again, it's identifying values and principles so that you can then sort of get a better understanding of who you are, not what you do. Now, in many cases, what you do is an extension of your values and principles and of who you are. But if you take that away, you don't lose who you are. You remain still aligned with your values and principles. So I didn't struggle with that in one, in that aspect as much. And then two, I cheated the system <laughs> because I moved into a different sport of which I've quickly found some success. And it became another thing that I could... Um, put my values and principles towards by doing triathlon, Ironman triathlons and racing in that after a couple of years professionally and at the top of the sport. And then I moved from that into ultra running and I won a bunch of those races. So it turned into like, I became a lifelong athlete. I became a lifelong um, person who could always have this outlet. And also quite honestly, on, on the most basic fundamental level, it was constantly validated and the ego was satisfied with success in each one of these sports. And so I could move on to, let's say, finance or starting my other business and so forth while I'm doing these sports because that continued to validate me and, and keep that athlete alive in me. So even when swimming ended, which didn't end with a, 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 a big crash, I never finished right i never got to swim in atlanta and that was pretty much it i was done after that um so it just sort of fizzled out um but that being said athletes at the highest level um let's say even football players basketball players i mean it is a huge huge issue 
and very similar to the one of taking off the uniform, whether it's in um, first responders, law enforcement, or in the military. And that's why there's also a beautiful foundation that combines NFL football players with military um, that when it's called taking off the uniform, right? Um, I think it's called MVP. Uh, And again, they align former NFL football players who lose all their identity from one day to the next, right? Literally from a Sunday, your last game or Saturday in college and playing in front of a hundred thousand people in the SEC at Georgia or whatever to not being drafted and everything you've worked your entire life towards since you're like five or six years old is gone. The structure, the mindset, the support, the validation, the purpose, boom, gone. Whether it's swimming, same thing. Whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, whether it's wearing a uniform. Since you're 17, 18 years old, you were you had purpose, you had a team, you had a progress. And then, you know, you're done with the military. And of course, or you're discharged, or your tour of your your service is done, right? Your contract is over. And it leaves a huge, huge void. I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> if I did, if I did, I would be out there trying to convey that to everybody. Well, I think you touched on it with the way that they had um, groomed you guys whilst you were swimming in Germany, which is from you know early in your career, saying, "Look, right from then, this is something you do. This is not who you are." And if you ingrain no. that and make that part of the culture, and then you know, as you kind of touched on the public speaking element give them tools, like get them to start thinking about that transition. Because the ones I've noticed from the uniform professions that, again, the people that had that burning desire to serve, I took the uniform off four, four and a half years ago now to, to do this because I was you know tired of what was happening. I just couldn't fix it really from within the fire service. I had to transition out and advocate for my you know men and women without being handcuffed by you can't say this or you can't do that. Um, and so what I realized is the people that transitioned and they found something else that had the same purpose. I mean, just a uniform doesn't isn't the only way to serve a community, to help, to make the world better, to stop suffering. So once you find what that looks like next, usually that's a pretty good transition. But I've noticed the ones that came out of the military and then went into real estate or finance, that sometimes can be more jarring because they're trying to find that purpose, that service element. And maybe in that particular organization, it wasn't there. And so they struggled. Yeah. And that's the fun, the beauty, the joy of what we're doing and ultra endurance events for a lot of these athletes. Because I call them athletes, right? you're, You're an athlete, whether you're in the military, you're extremely skilled physically, whether you're you know athlete, obviously, and on a professional level, whether you're in law enforcement and you've done a lot of work in order to get those skills. So, but finding something where your physical self can still express itself is very, very effective, extremely effective. Because again, you want some sort of way to test yourself, to grow, to progress, to learn about yourself. And endurance events and ultra endurance events really force you to go inward, right? I call it working in, not just working out. 
while you're out there in the woods for six, seven hours running, while you're out there on your bike for three, four, five hours, you know, there's a lot of time you're spending in your head. And it's very powerful. And it's all with the right <laughs> neurochemicals going versus you know different ways of getting neurochemicals going. But that being said, there's camaraderie, there's outcomes, there's support, there's health. There's so much within that. And, you know, that's what we've been talking about. Let's say Ryan and I, from a perspective of that, this 7X thing isn't just a one-off thing. It's an annual gathering of, let's say in the, in the special operations community or just of the military in general, where they can be physically active. We have speakers, we have education in nutrition and mental health and supplementation and strength training and, um, you know, work training and um, growing your portfolio of what you can work in as an annual festival, as an annual way to see your brothers and sisters, as your other, as an annual way to do something physical for two, three days. I'm calling it, or I liken it to, I'm not calling it, trust me, it's not me, um, like a burning man for all, you know, military post-service personnel. Where you have, it's like a job fair combined with an uh, ultra endurance weekend of mountain biking and running and rucking and climbing and that along with um, educators there who can teach you skills with, you know, learning how to cook and nutrition and supplementation and strength training as well as mental health professionals. It's all there. And you go from booth to booth, experience to experience, and you're, you're having an amazing time. And it's, it's all there. We've combined these foundations. We combine these um, resources for everybody. We know that X, Y, Z is going to be there. You're a burn victim from the service. Guess what? We have those resources there for you face-to-face. You're struggling with mental health. We have six or seven booths and stands and resources of hundreds of people there to talk to and take next steps and have an action plan. You wanna get fitter, you wanna get healthier, you wanna um, you know, get off the booze. We have resources and support there to do that. You know, along with doing cool stuff, right? And cold plunges and saunas and the breath work and all that. I mean, you could put all this, you just put it all into one place in the middle of nowhere, it'd be, it'd be amazing. Absolutely. And like you said, that tribal element, that community would be so healing. And then another thing that I heard you talking with Rich Roll on one of the Coaches Corner podcasts you did with him, the power of nature. And this is a resounding common denominator in healing. So many of us are living in concrete boxes. And you know, I grew up on a farm, so I was always dirty. I was always you know, up to my knees in mud and mucking out stables and all that kind of thing. So again, I was very fortunate to be kind of indoctrinated as a child that that was normal. There's a lot of people that were born in an apartment complex or a projects or, you know, whatever it was, just simply getting people out the city and being yeah. outside, which again, goes back to how poorly they managed the whole COVID, you know, pandemic, as they told yeah. everyone to do all the, th- you know, stop doing all the things that are healthy for you and get your booze and fast food, you know, door dashed. Yeah. And take a pill. Yeah, Exactly. So, but so talk to me about that. You've got these, you know, these events that you do, whether it's Kona or some of these, you know, ultra marathons. Talk to me what you see in yourself and the people that you coach as far as the power of nature in that entire experience. 
Yeah, I mean, even just a weekend out there, two to three weeks of uh, days, excuse me, not a weekend, a weeks, um, two to three days, a long weekend out in nature can reset the system for months, maybe not for a year, but for months that you have that connection, that those signals get turned on, that are deep, deep inside of us. And that's how we operate. That's how we evolutionarily evolved being out in nature, breathing fresh air, connecting with the trees, the plants and the animals around us. Not that you're hugging trees, no, but that you're feeling that as you're running through a forest, as you're hiking through a forest. None of this has to be anything extreme. It just has to be out there. They call it forest bathing. You can just sit in a sit spot where you just breathe it in and take in a big landscape. All these things are proven psychologically and physiologically to benefit you. But that's another reason to get us out there, whether this is annual gathering or in your prep for that annual gathering, you're getting out there two, three weekends every quarter where you're actually getting into fresh air, getting into nature. I mean, we have so many foundations, whether it's in the military and law enforcement and first responders, where the whole goal is get them outside right? Breathe fresh air, take a rafting trip down the Colorado River, do a hike in in the Pacific Northwest, go to upstate New York and just walk in the fields. I mean, there's it's constant. That's what, what a lot of companies and so on pride themselves on. We take veterans outdoors and all good and great, but let's but how are we continuing that? And how are we continuing to grow that knowledge of this is necessary all the time, all the time. Absolutely. Well, I can say it myself. There's, there's a beach just south of St. Augustine in Florida called Crescent Beach, which is, I don't know how I'm spiritually attached to this place, but it is my happy place. And when I go there and I've got a, a German shepherd and um, I'll be chucking the ball up and down the beach and we walk about probably about four miles, you know, two miles there, two miles back. And it's incredible. Just And that's only couple hours you know mm-hmm. and, the, and then you're running in and out of the ocean and and just there is there's something about it but i mean you get people that adore the desert you get people that adore the redwood forest so again find what kind of environment that you enjoy to be around don't force yourself to be you know on top of a glacier if you hate the cold yeah. <laughs> but find your exactly. happy place in nature yeah yeah and and Again, there's so many ways to go about that. If you're in a big city, just sitting on a park bench and just taking it all in. I mean, it's, and you will notice how you feel after. We all do. It's just, we've also gone numb to the signals in our body over time. And we forget what healthy feels like, or we forget what an open mind feels like. But the more you do it, the more you start turning on those signals and you recognize, oh, that's what that feels like. Right? It takes practice. It's a, a muscle like anything else. Being able to become aware of your body, how it's responding, what it's doing, how you're breathing, what your heart rate is doing. You can hear all that in our bodies. That's the crazy thing, right? But we're so used to using devices and all kinds of other things that we forget that we can just sit still and notice it ourselves. Now, speaking of kind of grounding and being in touch with nature, um, I I love barefoot training. I do CrossFit and I try and wear shoes as little as possible when it makes sense. I mean, I'm not pounding concrete for hours barefoot. Um, but you know, when especially when you're on a beach or on grass or something, it's it's uh, another way to to ground. Yeah. Earthy. What is your philosophy on 
training your athletes barefoot? I mean, again, not the actual race through a desert for a hundred miles, but do you incorporate any barefoot training for the the kind of foot health and um, proprioception element? It depends. It depends on what they're getting ready for. And, 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 you know, I'm not going to train a cyclist to do something barefoot, um, but the runners for sure. Um, some earthing like that. I'm definitely a big fan but I would say most athletes that I work with, they're already aware of this. They've come to me looking for that next level, not necessarily in performance, but in mindset and sort of growth as a human. Um, and so it's a little bit of a different uh, scenario that I'm in because they're already trying to grow themselves and be out in nature. And they're already so far down that path that they, yeah, they will hug a tree. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't necessarily need to prescribe that, but every now and then there's definitely people where it's like, all right, let's just get you outside. Let's get you immersed in water. Let's get you in a cold plunge. Let's get you in a sauna. Let's get you feeling your physiology. Right. And that's the other thing that so many people forget your physiology directly influences your psychology, right? It, it's one directly feeds the other. So the healthier and active, more active you are, the better your psychology, right? And we can enhance, we can manipulate our physiology. Obviously we know that through exercise, but through breath work, through meditation, through walking, through you know um the thermal reg regulation of ice and sauna i mean there's so many ways to do this without doing something crazy like running seven marathons and seven continents on seven days <laughs> <laughs> well i want to get to that one quick um point to slide in between it there is uh one of the uh, the owners of the crossfit gym that i coach and train at karen was a swimmer for a long time and she is like a female terminator she mm -hmm. blows most of us out of the water she's i think 40 now 42 something like that stone cold face the best poker face on in the gym um but i've asked her about it and and i think partly it sounds like it was the breathing from being a swimmer but also and i i just watched a, uh, a running film with my son they kind of talked about the same topic it was the ability to push through that pain threshold as well so you swim at a very very high level but then you get into the triathlon world where you're running and you're cycling what allowed you to be successful? Of course, your swims are probably fast because of your background, but what did you bring outside of that that allowed you to be so good at the running and the cycling as well? Um, I've always been an endurance junkie in that respect. I chose events and swimming early on because I'm never going to be the biggest and strongest because they were a lot bigger and stronger than me in most events. Um, so I picked the most difficult ones the 400 IM and the 200 butterfly. And I took that psyche sort of into the triathlon world with loving Ironman right away and the difficulty of it and moving into the hottest event or the, you know, the most difficult location. Um, and so that just corresponded to my psychology very well, as long as, as well as the work, right? You being consistent and repetitive and showing up every day with intention over many years, like I was in swimming, triathlon is made for that, right? Um, you got to stay healthy and show up consistently and frequency builds the endurance engine. 
And so it was just another outlet for me to continue the routines and patterns I'd built into my life since I'm three, four years old. And so triathlon allowed that. And that just created a platform then for ultra running. But ultra running actually turned it into more of a mind game. Triathlon was still competitive and I was still looking for an outlet. But then ultra running really turned into a mental game. The longer um, I liked being in those difficult situations. I liked being out there, you know, 30, 40, 50 hours in um, lack of sleep, lack of food, being cold, being miserable and sort of dancing with those demons in your head. And I, I, you know, I learned more about myself then in those moments than I do, you know, in any situation at home. <laughs> And, you know, it becomes a little bit more difficult because I have to go further and further these days to kick in, kick open those doors of the mind. But um, doing this for 30, 40 years now has really served me in that respect. And I'm always curious to push that boundary, not from an adrenaline standpoint, but from a mindset standpoint. Right. So are there any common denominators, common themes or observations with people not being able to tap into their true capacity because the, my son is a, a one mile runner, a two mile runner in, in high school. Um, and we watched this film and it was, you know, very cheesily put about, you know, you've got to push through the pain and all this stuff. It was very Hollywood, but he came back from track the next day and was like, dad, I used that kind of concept and I ran faster today. Um, and then you hear obviously some of our elite performers like you, know, you use you know X percent of what you actually have. What are some of the observations of why so many of us, and I'll put myself in there, I don't think I've ever reached maximum capacity in anything ever, um, aren't able to tap into that? I mean, wh what are some of the the tools, if any, that you're able to help on the mindset side? the tactical athlete, the sporting athlete start accessing what they didn't even realize was there? Well, um, the first part there is that mindset only gets you so far. Below the level of mindset, mindset is a global term, fixed and growth mindset. We're familiar with that from Carol Dweck's work. And, but below that mindset, universal term is this thing called mental toughness. And that's where the work is. Because mental toughness is the muscle that can be trained. And mental toughness is what supports, protects, and um, nourishes mindset. Because we all, many of us, not that we all, that's a, that was a wrong term. We, many of us have a growth mindset. Now we have a fixed mindset and other things, which is ironic in general, because we believe we're growth in one area, but we're fixed in another area. But that's... That's neither here nor there. The, the growth mindset doesn't get us very far, though. And people say, well, no, Chris, what are you talking about? And that is, it doesn't stop the monkey mind. It doesn't stop the negative self-talk. It doesn't stop the imposter syndrome. It doesn't stop the, the wondering if we can. Um, what helps that is mental toughness, the reps of doing hard things. And it starts small. It starts small. When you face adversity, and we face adversity in a thousand little instances every day, right? And that you lean into that and you recognize that ah, there's an opportunity. Lean into it. What? Take the stairs. 
lean into it. What help carry those groceries? What I don't really want to do that right now. What I got to wake up to go to the gym. What I, you know, I'm not going to sit and watch Netflix. I'm going to read a book. What I mean, there's a thousand little decisions every day where you can choose the easy path or you can choose the hard path. And leaning into and recognizing I am constantly going to work that muscle in order to choose to dance with the difficult things. Because I've always said who you are in adversity is who you are. No other scenario, when things get difficult, the mask comes off, the identity comes forward, and it's who you truly are. And guess what? When you're truly who you're, who you're destined and who you are, who you're meant to be, it feels way better. Once again, overcoming adversity, dealing with obstacles, makes us happier as humans because our true self comes forward. And so these are, these are, this is a, the mental toughness muscle is what we're constantly able to train. And the better you get at it, the more reps you have at it, the less anything looks intimidating because it turns the mindset, the monkey mind into, okay, we've been here before. It turns it into positive self-talk actually. Like once the negative, the first ego questioning monkey mind Thought comes up, you go, wait, well, okay, it makes sense, but I've done this before. Or I've done this in the past, I can do it again. Right? Hope is this description of will plus way. You gotta want it, but there's also a way you see through it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have hope. You would it would just be impossible. But you have a desire to figure out a way to do it. You combine will and way, way, a past way that you've successfully done something difficult, will being the motivation, the drive to persevere through something difficult. You combine those two, you have hope. But we're constantly, you know, exercising that muscle. That's mental toughness. And I think it, it is the key to, to unlock that mindset, that growth, that progress, that ability to do hard things well i'm so glad i asked that question because this this will be about as loaded as a baked potato in a restaurant this next bit that i'm talking about but you talk about the uh, mental toughness being something you can train i have worked for a spectrum let's just take the academy one of my academy the very first academy i ever had as from a fire department going into the fire service was awful they they hired a big group of us, half of us already had all of our certifications. We were either fire, um, EMT or medic. The other half was civilians because it was a non-cert class. They sent the civilians to fire school and EMT school. And then they had us at the fire academy for three months to just brutalize. Um, and it was horrendous and amazing at the same time. And that really set the bar for the level of discomfort and misery that you know, the whole sweat on the drill ground so you don't bleed on the battleground kind of mentality. Conversely, my very last one, we didn't have any standards whatsoever. We walked in, we did paperwork, we toured theme parks, and, and that was it. So I got to see both extremes. I have tried to find ways of putting myself to as many dark places again, once in a while, not every single time, um, in jujitsu and CrossFit and strongman training and all these things to get 
to that red zone every so often so that I remind, okay, I can do this and this is the suck and I can push through it. But what I see is there are people in uniform that their academy was the hardest thing they ever did. And they're like, all right, I'm in now, you know, the occasional training, but I'm good. So as much as you can train mental toughness upwards and maintain that, is that also a perishable skill that if you don't keep yourself in discomfort, you will become weaker and weaker through your career too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like any muscle, right? If you don't use it, you'll lose it. And that's the challenge. Um, you're constantly, and why a lot of clients of mine and groups I work with, they're usually in their mid forties, right? They're searching for something again to put that effort and that fear and that curiosity towards, right? Like, I'm sorry, most of us will open a magazine and see some amazingly hard event or open some website and be like, I can, how cool would it be to do that? And our, and we envision ourselves into that scenario. Now we forget the work that's involved to get to that place, but that brings up something within us. And that challenge skill threshold that fear wall that's sitting out there and how do we cross over that? That is That puts us into our best state, right? Many will argue that's flow state, right? When you're right on the edge of your challenge skill level, you have to put all your mental fortitude into it. You have to prepare for it. Um, you have to do the reps. And now you get to apply that all, whether it's at an event or whether it's at work, whether that's musically, whether that's coaching, whether that's speaking in front of people. And then you're just boom, you're in that sweet spot. <clears throat> but that takes work, it takes practice, it takes reps, it takes time in preparing for that so that you can have those experiences. But another thing you said there is that it doesn't necessarily, a lot of people associate this with the athletic self. And I don't, I don't associate it with it at all. I associate it with every little situation we have in our day. Like how we want to show up and are we going to embrace the adversity, right? How you respond to the circumstance. How will you respond to any circumstance? You can avoid, wait, right? And it's going to show up either way. What you resist persists or you can deal with it now, <clears throat> right? And it's a constant choice. It's a constant decision. It's a constant observation. Am I dealing with the problem? Or am I not? Right? And, it, and whether it's with in relationships, whether it's at work, whether it's with our physical health, whether it's our mindset, whether it's how we're speaking with our kids, whether it's we turn on and off our phone, whether it's, you know, do we have the third drink? <laughs> do we have no drink? Do we have, you know, choosing that cigarette? Like, what's harder? Give me the hard path. Right? Beautiful. Love it. Well, that's the perfect segue to something hard that we're about to do in two weeks from now. I'm going to be on a support position, but I don't think some people realize just how hard that's still going to be sleeping on plane seats, total circadian rhythm disruption, you know, food and the, the, the bare necessities that we're so used to being taken away. And then we have, you know, what our athletes are doing. And obviously you're going to be running with them. So two years ago, Ryan called me with this 
crazy idea and you know didn't hear about it for a long time and then about a year ago he's like we're doing it um, i was like oh okay <laughs> and then fast forward here we are talk to me about your you know how you were brought into this and then what are the tools that you're giving these already elite tactical performers to get them through this event and, and, and please describe the event through your eyes as well yeah yeah so um in late mid-may of 2022 so you know about eight nine months ago i received an email from one of the guys on the team um, that they were looking for some help in getting a ready for a unique event and i responded back i'd be glad to jump on a call um, and help you out with whatever endurance event you're getting ready for it's part of what i do i do these consults one hour calls with people and talk about their training or the expedition or logistics or mindset or whatever it is and um we got on that call and uh in this case alex was describing the um, initial idea of the event he hadn't really gone into all the details yet I said, well, that's interesting because I have three other athletes that are doing a similar event called the World Marathon Challenge. It's an annual event where you run seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And I was like, I'm coaching three guys, two girls, uh, two guys and one girl for that right now. So I'd be glad to help. Easy. And then he said, well, we're a bunch of uh, former military guys that are looking to do this in a little bit different way. And I was like, well, well, that's good because I coach anybody from within the military, active duty or former um, forces in that respect. Um, special operators have a different standing for me because I deal with so many of them with regards to a prepping them for buds, especially, but also um I know a, a few swimmers <laughs> in that community. So I said, yeah, I coach you guys for free anyway. So glad to help. And he's like, well, actually, there's <laughs> four of us. I was <laughs> like, All right, well, you know. Um, so, but that's a standing rule. I coach first responders and active duty military for free at all times. Um, there's no if, ands, or buts about that. Because I this is very near and dear to my heart and keeping them fit and healthy and therefore mentally strong and, and capable. But, um, and then a lot of post, you know, veterans, it's a, it's a unique cir circumstance in each. It depends, you know, there's definitely veterans who are working for a multinational company, making plenty of money. They don't need to be coached for free. Right. But if you need help, I coach you for free, for sure. Um, so yeah, it started there. And then they expanded on the next call. We got on a call with the whole team with Ryan and Alex and Leo and Danny and George in this case as well. Um, and they explained exactly what it is they're planning to do. Also throwing in a skydive slash base jump, jump in each location and a plunge into the water, ocean, swim, whatever it is to validate the whole sea, land, air thing that they're taking so seriously. <laughs> which I'm not sure the army guys all signed up for that, that same way, but um, I think they're along for the ride in that respect. So it's like, all right, well, I'm not worried about coaching you for the jumps. These guys are experts in that. That's sort of what they do. And a lot of them, a, a few of them in this group do this um, as their hobby anyway. And I'm not worried about the plunge on the back end because that'll feel amazing um it's health it's healthy it'll work well it's a great 
you know, photo op, as well as it's, you know, again, camaraderie. When everybody comes together, you're done. You finish the day. Let's do this. So it was about coaching them for the marathon in seven of them in seven days, or what would otherwise be called in in runner's terms, 184-mile run week, <laughs> which no nobody usually does. So, and on pavement. Right. So you have big run weeks, rarely above 100 miles. You have some big ultra runners who have the history of running a lot of miles. They can do 110, 115 mile run weeks, but not really worth anything more than that because you recovery from it requires uh, too much time. So here we are doing 184 mile run week as well as it's on pavement. Right. Because from from trails, you can recover a lot quicker, less impact on the joints and body and back and, and ligaments and so forth. But pavement and concrete, that's going to be a different story. So we started from there, right then and there, right there. And 5th of June, 6th of June, I was like, well, we got to get going. Like you might think it's no, no big deal running four or five hours a day for seven days, but it's the wear and tear after three, four days that we're getting ready for. And so. We've been training for the eight months. We had some ups and downs, meaning some people were getting injured and some people were fighting niggles and so forth. But everybody has lined up healthy right now. The most important time, February 3rd right now. And we have four, five, six healthy runners ready to go. So I'm excited on that. Like for me as a coach for ultra endurance events and adventures, the first priority is to get you to the start line healthy, capable, willing, meaning motivated. Then my work is basically done. The rest is in your mind and allowing your body to do what it knows to do. And I always like to say, and I do a lot of talks about this, is don't let the mind get in the way of what the body knows to do. Right? The body knows. The body knows how to run. And we've been training it for eight months to know how to run every day for seven days. So that's the challenge. Now, the guys themselves are in for what they, you don't know what you don't know, right? And they have done some extremely hard stuff, right? And they've had to persevere for many, many days in a row through things. So it's going to be a little bit of a test case for me too on seeing how these guys who've done very hard things and as special operators and all having done active tours of duty in, in some very extreme conditions, situations, day after day after day after day, on how that will translate to an endurance athletic event. So to answer the question in a long way, I haven't given them any tools yet in that respect. Because I know I'm going to be there with them. And I can have these conversations with them on the plane while we're running. Like I did a marathon this past weekend. I was in Clearwater, Florida um, for one of my companies. And they, I, I had an opportunity. I ran the marathon on Sunday. And a, a former NFL tight end was running the marathon too. And is a friend of a friend of mine. And I got to him at mile 21. And he had already said to me, Chris, my goal is to break four hours. I've been training for this. I'm pretty excited to do it. Um, and I saw him at mile 21 and I could see him down the road. I mean, he's tall. He's a big guy. I mean, you can, you can tell those in the marathons. They usually stand out. 
And I could see him. I started yelling. I was like, you took it out too fast. Because if I'm catching you, that means you paced it wrong. But for the next five miles, I was in his head. I was standing, running shoulder to shoulder, right behind him, just talking. Like, who do you want to be at the end of this? You will not have this opportunity again to be at mile 21, set up for a sub four-hour marathon and be this fit and be this healthy. Let's not waste this opportunity, you know? And when you close your eyes in a week from now, you're not going to remember the pain you're in right now. And I'm yelling. People around us are like, can you just yell at us for the next four, (laughs) four or five miles? But that's, again, that's going to be the scenario. I don't know what we're going to need. But whatever we're going to need, I'm going to be ready for it for them. And we're going to do this. I have an athlete right now doing the seven um, continents, the World Marathon Challenge, what I call the retail version. His knee is screwed. I mean, it's really effed up. He can't run on it. He is walking, shuffling, dragging his leg. He's already three marathons done. And I talked to him on the phone the other day. And I was like, listen. This is not a question of if you're going to do it. It's a question of how. And you chose the hard path and I'm proud of you. Anybody can do this when they're fit. Anybody can do this when they're prepared. But guess what? You're broken. You're choosing the hard path and your memories and your experience. Because I say there's stories in the experience. We're all going to experience 7X. But our story of how we're experiencing is different for each one of us. And his story of doing seven marathons on seven continents in seven days on one leg, it's going to be awesome. But he's in it right now. He's in a hard, hard place. And there's doubts. And what am I doing? But that's the mind now. Well, another added element to this, the first stop, which will be two weeks today, will be at, um, Antarctica. The next stop will be Perth, Australia in the middle of their summer. So you have, you couldn't have two more extremes, I would think, at that one month. Yeah. What challenges are you looking at with the very cold versus the very hot? Yeah, I was looking today. We're getting some cold weather coming in. Um, Those guys ran two days ago in Antarctica um, and it was minus 18 with the wind chill of minus 32. And ours is looking to be a high of minus 23 currently. It's the long range with a wind chill of minus 45. Oh, God. So <laughs> it's, um, it's not quite of what they expected. Um, we were thinking originally around zero to minus 10, but we've got some weather coming in. So I am was telling those guys earlier today or yesterday, um, I was like, start thinking about that jump. Um, what our backup is with regards to weather and uh, the windows that we're finding. Let's get some intel on that area. But that being said, yeah, the next day, Perth today, because those guys were running Perth today, um, they were delayed getting out of Cape Town. They're doing, they did Africa second. So they did, they started in Antarctica. They did Cape to back to Cape Town because they started, they met in Cape Town. So they did Africa and Cape Town. And then they went on to Perth. They were a little bit delayed. So they lost some hours, but they're still within the 24-hour windows. Um, so they didn't go the extreme we did. But it's 97 degrees right now in Perth. And it's, it looks like it's going to stay pretty steady between 100 and 95 degrees in uh, Perth. So we're going to go from minus 23 
to plus 95 in a matter of 11 hours. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. <laughs> but that's nutrition and hydration and and caring for your body and and doing all the tips and tricks. Um, I did a triathlon in Malaysia one year with the humidity at, let's say, 98% and whatever, 99%. It was basically raining, <laughs> but you know it from Florida. But the uh, air temperature was 113. You know, you slow down and you figure you manage your way through those four hours, four or five hours that we're going to be out there. It's not, it'll be fine. We can care. We have a team. We have fluids. It's not like we're stuck in the middle of the nowhere and we have to figure this out. We have a great team. And so it's just a question of, you know, not getting caught up in the distance, not getting caught up in the time and just one foot in front of the other. Let's execute, 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 execute. That's something Ryan will be hearing a lot because that's their, when they're a commanding officer at any type of mission, before they start, you hear those three words three times. That means they're go. So we're going to have this incredible resource at the end of this. The, the the 7X really is to break these men in this particular case down. They've been training for eight months prior. And then how we put them back together again, the reboot phase is really going to be the gold. And that's what we can use in these manuals to to give the takeaways of how you prepare for this profession, how you stay healthy within and how you transition out healthily as well. One area that I'm so passionate about because I've literally watched it kill my friends is sleep deprivation and the power of sleep. This community that I work in, I don't think the average person has any idea. The average firefighter works 56 hours a week. So that's, you know, three nights without sleep, you know, depending on how it falls. A lot of places that I worked in most of my career and even the one that protects my family at the moment, they are understaffed. So now they're told at 7 a.m. you can't go home. You have to stay for another 24. Now you're looking at an 80 hour work week. We've got injuries galore in the first responder professions. We've got these mental health problems. We've got weight gain. We've got cancers and strokes from a performance side. And then if you have a longevity perspective as well, talk to me about how sleep is valued in these elite athletes that you work with from the longevity and the performance stance. It's the gold standard of ingredient. It is the number one ingredient for longevity. No ifs, ands, or buts. And ever so gently, we're changing our perspective, our mindset, and our knowledge of sleep in every community of understanding that, you know, working more hours isn't a hero. It means you're paying the price. In a couple of years, you no longer will be performing at this level. And instead, you'll be performing at way lower of a level. And the long-term um, um, cost of this is your is going to be your health right health is wealth you can be oh so wealthy in the world whether you're a wall street banker and you're proud of your you know 100 hour work weeks great you're sitting on a bunch of money but you're sick your cortisol levels are terrible you got type 2 diabetes because you've been eating sugar and junk to stay awake right you can't do the adventures like this adventure, for example, if it were to come up. I always say to some of the wealthiest clients in the world that I have, and they're some, some pretty big hitters, right? 
If you're not adventure ready, what's the point? Right? If you're not adventure, if a buddy calls you and says, I want to go hella skiing in Japan because I heard the snow is epic and I know this community is amazing there. Ready? And you can't turn around in six weeks, be ready to go. Instead, you're sitting in the lodge answering phone calls or you're not physically capable. Great. You lived it. Great. Whatever. I laugh at those guys. I laugh at them. Right? You have a third house somewhere. Great. You're going to go there and sit by the pool because you're not adventure ready. You're not ready to live a life. So yeah, sleep is the number one ingredient. And yes, we are going to run into some sleep deprivation, but this is my whole point with the whole experiment slash knowledge slash what we're highlighting here is that for oh so many years, and you just brought it up in the firefighter community, if when you're on, you're on, and, and you're off, guess what? You're still on. Because A, it takes a while for those cortisol levels to flush out and reset. You don't know what reset is anymore because it's been up 80 hours and so forth, right? Number one. So you're in a fog of fatigue and you don't even realize it. You're just constantly in the fog. And you operate at this level for years. Secondly, when you're off, guess what? You're still a father, you're still a community member. You're still a husband. You're still a homeowner. You still you have all those other responsibilities. It's not like you're making millions and you're farming all this out. You still have a mortgage to pay. You still have a gutter to fix. You still have a lawn to right? Like, so you're still on. You're still doing the duties. This is what I'm saying to the special operator community. You're coming home. You've been gone for months or weeks. Now you've got weapons training. Now you got skills training. Now you got to stay fit. Now you're going to be there for your family. Now you got to go to little league games. Now you can't ignore your wife. Now you get, like, guess what? You're not getting downtime. You're not getting recovery. You're not getting sleep. You have to catch up on all the things you've been doing. So now, guess what? Four, five, six years of this cycle, boom, you're fried. And in the endurance community in this, uh, and in the athletic community, this is called overtraining. This is called overreaching, right? At some point, your body shuts down. And guess what? You never get that back as an athlete. Hormonally, your adrenals are shot. And we feel it as athletes because we can no longer perform. So we have a number to look by. We have watts to hold or paces to run or weight to lift. So you can measure, well, I just don't got it. It's gone. I need to really shut it down. But if in the operator community or in the, first responder community, you're not, you just realize you're just constantly tired, but your adrenals are totally shot. And guess what happens when our adrenals are shot? The mind starts to go because the entire system, the wires are crossed. It's not, the brain isn't getting what it needs. The neurochemistry isn't happening. The thyroid starts working weird. Everything starts going up and down, upside down. And the thoughts that we have in those times become more and more frequent to the negative side. And it's because of what happened six, seven years ago. It's not because of right now. It's not because of what we're struggling with right now. It's because of what happened three, four years ago that we've been, that's been accumulating and you can't just take a shot. You can't just take a pill to get your adrenals back. It's a very gradual, sensitive, 
you know, you got to be very smart on how you rebuild it. Well, firstly, thank you. That was such a much much needed perspective. There's two groups that need to hear this more than ever. One is the employer that are working their people. And, you know, again, we talked earlier about you know, cowardly leadership. That's something that I see a lot in the fire service. But then the other, we're our own worst enemy, our union members or some of our firefighters look at this as a cash cow. Oh, if I, you know, get more overtime. overtime. Yeah. Well, as you said, what good is overtime? What good is buffing, you know, padding that last three years for your retirement if you only make it three years in? And I've heard uh, Tim Ferriss refer to this. A lot of the wealthiest people he knows spent the first heart, first part of their life um, making their wealth at the expense of their health and the second part spending their wealth trying to reclaim their health. So, you know, if, if you want that ski boat or that Winnebago, beautiful, you know, advocate for a work week that actually allows us to thrive and then go hang drywall or do whatever you want to, to improve your income, but go to bed at night. And so we yeah. have to own our sleep hygiene at home and we have to fight for a work week because it's insane. The person that bags your groceries at the store is going to work 40 hours a week. The person driving emergency vehicles through traffic around your family and going to a burning building to fight a child and then pull them out and work paramedic pediatric codes on them is working 50, 60, 80 hour weeks sleep deprived. And it's just so backwards. I'm not saying the person bagging should be working 80 weeks, yeah, but the first but responder so- shouldn't. Yeah. And it's also, it's look at it from a perspective of what's, what's the hurry. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you get that overtime and make that money in order to get to where quicker. Why? Right. Like if anything, I want to keep that somewhat not balanced. I don't like the word balance because life isn't balanced and never works out that way. But at least I want to be healthy enough and still have a purpose, maybe work less hours, but still do. I love firefighting. I love serving my community or whatever. Okay. I know it's not this black and white. Right. Some people need the money and, and many people need the money. And we, you know, they have responsibility. They want to provide opportunity for their kids, you know, college funds and so all this crap isn't getting cheaper. Right. And they want to provide for their wife and, and just make it better. Right. And so there's a totally different motivation behind that. But again, at whether it's what Tim said or in other aspects, who do you want to be on the other side of this? Are you just going to be unhealthy? and miserable and not able to go on that hiking trip or hunting trip or fishing trip with your kids when they come home from college and you they want to do something fun they're in the prime of their life 23 24 25 or in college right and they want to do something fun and you're not capable because you're physically exhausted wrecked right i'm sorry i'd like to live it I'd like to live it with my kids and the lifestyle I want to live until I'm 80, 85, 90. I don't think there is even a barrier. I have a, I have a, 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 a friend of mine. He's a client, but he's also a, a, a good buddy. We're both competing. He said to me a few years ago when he was like, Chris, I want you to help me to um, race Badwater. Badwater is an ultra marathon from Death Valley to the top of Mount Whitney. And it's the hottest foot race in the world. Your shoes melt and all kinds of stuff. It's 135 degrees, 135 mile race, excuse me, or temperatures at Death Valley and, and on the road because you're running on a black asphalt can get into the 120s. 
That's a brutal. And then you climb a, a you know eight thousand foot mountain on the way. That you reach twelve thousand feet in height. Um, so it's a brutal race. But he said to me, he's like, I want to be the oldest guy. I want to just be a fit old guy. I want to win the Masters and I want to set records. And I was like, Yeah, you got a problem there because I want to do the same thing. <laughs> right? Like that's fun. Think about that. That's fun. Like, okay, all right. Maybe you're not interested in that, but maybe you love deep sea fishing. Maybe you love golf. Maybe you love jumping out of planes. Do you want to do that when you're 60? When you're 70? Heck yeah. Now I'm in a place where I'm financially secure or maybe not, but at least I can live my life. I want to, I, I want to keep working because I want to have a little bit of money coming in then. Retirement is overrated. I'd rather be healthy making a little bit of money, having a sense of purpose and living the adventure of this thing called life all along. Well, I would argue as well on that same exact theme, imagine the money you would save if you were healthy because the number of people I know that are my age that are on testosterone Absolutely. replacement and statins and you know, you name it, how much does that gamut of meds, those co-pays, those doctor visits, those scans, you huh? could all be using that to travel and you know, use your health and take it around the world. For sure. Yeah, health is wealth, like you, you said, right? And again, I don't want to just survive this life. I want to thrive. There's always that choice, thrive or survive. And what you're doing now, you're making choices. And that's another thing with regards to hard things and easy things. Whether it's we tell our teenagers, but I still tell it to myself all the time now. The things you're doing now, Chris, you're making choices for what happens in five to seven years from now. Never forget that. Right. And so I say yes to things now that maybe, no, all right, we're going around the world. I'm said yes to something, you know, that we're, I'm literally flying from Dallas to ice camp in Minnesota to be in the freezing cold for 48 hours and plunging into an ice lake. Right. Why not? <laughs> Right. And then, you know, and I've got to do other things uh, the rest of the year. But it's like that's living. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are coming up on two hours. I have a few closing questions if you yeah. have time. Yeah. All for right. Sure. Be beautiful. Well, the first one I love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I was on this desk um, earlier, but I think. My wife took it with her. War of Art by Stephen Pressfield is amazing. It's highly recommended. I recommend it all the time. It talks about the resistance and how we have an opportunity every day to call, face this thing called resistance with a capital R. I love Stephen Pressfield. He also is a, an amazing nonfiction writer about you know the Spartans and the Marine Corps and some famous battles and stuff. But War of Art is a powerful one. That's one of my favorites, yeah. And along those lines, some a little newer is Seth Godin's The Practice, but it's similar, right? In in that, what is your practice and how are you choosing to do hard things? Fantastic. All right. We I had Pressfield recommended just a couple of interviews ago as well, and the, the Gates of Fire is one I got to get myself Gates reading. Of fire, yeah, it's a great yeah. one. Battle of Thermopylae. Yes, yeah, and then again, how that pertains to so many of the professions that are listening now. Yeah. So what about a movie and or documentary that you love? Oh, it caught me off guard with that one. Movie <laughs> or documentary that I love. 
That's a good one. I mean, the, the the typical, the cliche ones come, you know, from Braveheart to Gladiator and those types of things, right? Because, um, but I'm not sure that's the right answer with regards to what really resonates with me the most. Um, yeah, I don't know. You caught me. You caught me unprepared for that one. I can't think of one straight off the top of my head. Okay, I'll take the other ones. Braveheart, the Australian that liberated Scotland. That works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love that. Love that. <laughs> oh, and the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I wish I had some heads up. But I mean, it's good. You're trying to get the, the raw knowledge out of it. Um you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of the special operator community. I love Jocko Willink, right? Um, met him a few times. He's a great guy. Um, you know who I also like is and he's a he's a friend of mine and a, a client. Um, um, is Jesse Itzler. He's a great guy. Um, wrote the book Living with a Seal, and just his perspective and his public speaking tour right now is really amazing. If anybody has an opportunity to see him um, and who's also really good and who has a really good perspective for grit, mental toughness and faith and doing hard things is Chad Wright. He's he a was fan. a SEAL as well. Yeah, he's yeah. a Navy SEAL. I work with him in a fair amount of different endeavors and I respect him a ton. Um, again, kicking out the other side, taking off the uniform. And trust me, he's had his struggles too, but he's living in it. And he's trying to you know, wake up every day and make it work. And he's had his struggles. And uh, But what's beautiful about him is that he's open about it and he shares and he's vulnerable. And But he's a very you know, disciplined man. And how he communicates that message, I really respect him. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, yeah, I'll have to see, you know, once we get on the plane, we'll see if we can work out joining up and uh, getting those guys on as well. So thank you. Yeah. Well, he's, uh, he'll be following us anyway. So he's, uh, I'll send him a couple of texts from the trip. Beautiful. Perfect. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows not only your site, but your podcast, um, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Well, I love, I don't get a lot of vacations and it drives my wife bananas. But when I go on vacation, I do nothing. I literally do nothing. Um, I can sit on a beach for six, seven, eight hours and just do nothing and stare into space. Um, so uh, that is definitely something I look to do. Like after this in, in March, we're going to take a one week vacation and just completely get away. Um, and not that we're filling. It, it's not one of those where you fill your agenda with a variety of things you want to do. It's like, no, I'm going to park somewhere. But I do get my sleep. I am very you know, um, focused on my sleep. I do go through these waves of a lot of work and a little work. I mean, not my day to day work, but we're travel and expeditions and crazy adventures come up. Like I was home for the first time all of 2022 for six weeks at a time, just now from December until about two weeks ago. And that was fine. I didn't have to do much of anything. Like we ran and prepped for the 7X. But other than that, it's fine. Just 
sleep and good food and resetting at home, reading books and quiet time. And then life gets crazy again. Like then in February is basically crazy. March will be crazy, you know. And I might have a few weeks, two weeks of reset before I think I'm riding my bike across the country and from San Diego to Atlanta in April. So it never ends, but I we I'm specific. I'm very specific in going through waves and listening to my body. Um, there's and that also happens in years. I have a year where I have a ton of events and a lot of physically demanding things. And then other years, you know what? If nothing speaks to me, I'll take off. It's fine. I'll stay fit. I'll stay adventure ready, right? But I will not sign up for any events or say yes to any events because I'm like, I'm good. That brings up something that I heard you and Rich Roll talking about that I just wanted to kind of draw out as well quickly. There, there is a group of people who are very, very motivated and very obsessive. Um, and there's almost an element of guilt and shame if they you know, miss that workout. What mm-hmm. I've found as I've got older, and like you said, stay a mission ready, there's no question that that baseline is is still high. But I've been a little bit more holistic in the way I train. And rather than being, all right, I'm on this training regime now, and this is my target, it's a little bit more like, oh, I'm going to go to some jiu-jitsu, I'm going to go do CrossFit, I'm going to do my strongman class that I coach yeah. and I take part in. And it's it's put a lot of the fun back in. It's taken a lot of the pressure yeah. out. Talk to me about you know your perspective of sometimes being shackled to the need to be absolutely stuck to whether it's you know abstinence of alcohol or an exercise program. Yeah, I mean you're going to burn yourself out if you take yourself too seriously and take it too seriously. One, we all went professional in something other than the hobby, the endeavor, the sport we're doing. So let's take it from that perspective. Number two consistency over time will build a lot more fitness than too rigid of a structure. I'd rather you have a longer runway and can go with the swings of life and what it requires to sort of navigate this endurance training than being too rigid. Then you're going to be stuck. You're going to be burnt out. And guess what happens then? You're going to be at that finish line of your event and your family is going to be like, thank God that's over. That was annoying. Right. And we don't want that. That's not a lifestyle. That's a one off event. And great, you did it. And you took it very seriously. And I always like to say, again, like I said earlier, it's not a question of if you're going to do this, it's just going to be a question of how. So, what kind of runway are we building so that you can do this in a healthy, sustainable, injury free, mentally fresh manner? Right. This is supposed to be fun. We're choosing to do this. Doesn't mean we don't take it seriously. And again, what expectations are you creating for the event that you're looking to do? If you set those expectations very high, you need to understand, well, that comes with some costs, right? That comes with maybe, you know, abstaining from alcohol, going to bed early, all those things. But you're, let's, let's review that prior. And who are you going to be on the other side of that? Is that really the goal you're looking for? What's the desired outcome here? Are you looking just to validate something or is there truly something on the other side of this where... You know, you need to be this rigid. So there's a lot of nuance to this, understanding that, like that typical saying, right? Like, is the climb worth the view? Right? You might get to the top of that mountain and you're like, eh, I'm, this is not what I thought it would be. This is a landfill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right? So that, that's part of that. Don't burn yourself out just because, right? Well, I, I'm this type of person. Well, that's good and great, but... 
you know. And there's times in life where we do have to hunker down and we do have to be very disciplined and we do have to do things with focus and intention and clarity, right? And and make sacrifices. But let's choose those efforts wisely, not just on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then it's just this is just who I am. No, it's not. Brilliant. So we didn't really explore the whole coaching area you've done coaches corner with rich roll you have your own yeah. podcast as well which is full of all the zone training all the other kind of yeah. coaching elements um so where can people find i know you kind of rebranded the name of the podcast so where can people find the older episodes and then the more recent yeah ones? yeah they used to be called the weekly word podcast um there's about 150 160 two three hour podcasts out there of that and then i rebranded it to adventures in endurance about 20 episodes ago. Um, I'm not that frequent on it because, and there's a lot of people bug me about this, but they're because they're like, well, we want our weekly sort of update. No, I'm not here to just talk to talk. A lot of the things I've already said, and I don't have guests on, occasionally I'm going to get guests on, but usually I'm just going through the concepts and the mindset and so forth of endurance athletics. Um, and so there, I rarely make updates. Now I will, given the 7X, um, adventure. And so people are curious, well, what was that like? And what did you learn? And how could I have done that better? And the training techniques So that, that for sure is going to bring some fresh perspective to it so that I'm not just regurgitating old words. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then, you know, I have a coaching business where I work with endurance athletes, but the big thing on the coaching is I use endurance as a vehicle to have a deeper conversation. Right. Others use meditation. Others use their career. Others use a therapist. But to me, endurance is a, a vehicle to show how you, how consistent you are, how you behave over time, what your blind spots are, um, what you're struggling with. And it comes up over time. I get to see the pattern of who you are, because guess what? How you do one thing is how you do everything. And so the endurance athlete version of you will highlight to me, hey, you know what? What am I noticing here? So it requires the athlete not only to have an interest in, in an endurance outcome, of course, but also to, to grow and progress and be vulnerable and, and discover more about themselves. Like I was saying earlier, work it's about working in as much as it is about working out. And who you kick out on the other side with endurance potential and having learned more about yourself that's the version I want to send out into the world. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned about coaching first responders military for free. Yep. I do have, I know I've had some guests who are in either of those that are, you know, endurance runners, um, cyclists, et cetera. Where can people find the website to learn more yeah. about you? And if, if they wanted to reach out to you. Yeah, you can just send me an email at chris at aimpcoaching.com and the website's aimpcoaching.com and that's a-i-m-p coaching.com and advancing the integration of mindset on performance that's what a-i-m-p stands for so well chris i want to say thank you we've been chatting for well over two hours um it's been an amazing conversation i love this kind of long form because you know the yeah. rabbit holes are all over the place but oh yeah I'm so excited for joining you on the plane and watching, you know, this, as you said, you know, watching these athletes go through their physical and mental journeys 
um, but also the knowledge that you shared. And I want to thank you as well for you know offering your services for first responders because they need all the help we can get. As you mentioned, if Division three athletes get a higher level of care than our tactical athletes, then that needs to change. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Absolutely. I love it. And uh, this is the community that I care for, for sure.